the essence of what makes dogs special is their very affectionate, very loving natures. And what stems from that at a practical level is that we best go forward with our dogs, showing them gentle leadership. There's absolutely no point and no benefit bringing coercion and pain and all the kind of nonsense that you get in several of the most popular dog trainer shows. That's completely counterproductive. You can get the best outcomes for you and your dog by showing your dog gentle leadership, by using what people call positive reinforcement, treats and so forth, and kind words. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My guest today, this is so awesome. I'm going to go into a little bit of background. First, I want you to check out his book, Dog is Love. Clive Wynn is joining me today. Thank you, Clive, for joining me. I want to give the audience a little bit of a... Uh, of an intro into how we met and know each other <laughs> because we 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 met uh we met under some interesting circumstances if you if you remember we met you did my show stand up science in late january i believe of 2020 or maybe just well, the February. beginning of well, just the beginning, beginning of February, of February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so so for listeners that don't know, uh, I, I was, in addition to doing this show, I had, especially in 2019, I, I had done about 100 live shows of this show, Stand Up Science, I was touring with, where typically I would have uh, two academics and a second comedian join me for uh, a show that was kind of like half TED Talk, half... Um, comedy so i'd do stand up and then an academic would uh, join and share some of their research and back and forth and and uh and then we'd get together on stage at the end and do a whole q a with the audience is a bunch of fun i had a lot of fun touring with it i've had time to restructure the show a little bit since then and i've been and might be launching it again uh but when i met clive clive did the second or yeah, second to last one before COVID, and we uh, we showed up in Glendale, Arizona, and I had been I hadn't been touring with the show, and I hadn't been doing this show for like a month. I was doing a different tour, and so I was out of uh, out of the science realms a little bit, and not and I don't watch the news. <laughs> And so right before the show, I'm going back and forth with the second guest. Clive was one of them. And it's this biologist who's like, yeah, I don't know if I can be indoors with people and all this stuff, this COVID thing. And I'm like, COVID, what are you, what are you talking about? You can't be indoors? Are you what? And canceled on me for my show. And then I showed up and I was like, Clive, I guess it's just you. Uh, today, uh, I have some hypochondriac that uh, just <laughs> just canceled on me, and uh, and we had a show. It was it was just Clive, and he was actually I just thought of him recently because he he filled in the space really well and had a and had a, 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 a he was just a fantastic guest. And that was uh, at the time we were both like, yeah. 
this is this is blown out of proportion, right? And then cut to a yeah. few weeks later, and the whole world shut down. So that's that's how Clive and I met. <laughs> so it's wonderful to see you again, Clive, un, uh, under stranger circumstances and remotely this time. Shane, but, it's uh, great to be back with you. How have you? Uh, how have you been? How's your last fifteen? Uh, 15- 16 months? I forgot how counting works. 17 months back. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as you say, I mean, that that uh, that gig we did in uh, February, I think that might have been the last time I left the house for like a year. I mean, suddenly <laughs> this whole dramatically different world. And I think the moral of the story is if you're if you're going to meet with a biologist and the biologist is anxious about something, you should probably listen, you know. <laughs> they yeah. probably know something that you don't know or I don't know. But, well, uh, but I think, you know, I think I've had a fairly good pandemic as these things go, touch wood. Yeah, I, uh, I actually... Um, Oh shoot! What was her name, Jennifer? Anyway, I, I shortly afterwards I reached out to her to apologize for <laughs> not taking her seriously, and and had her on the show right away, and so made for kind of a fun and interesting episode. Um, cool. But on on a lighter note, um, today <laughs> we're going to be talking about dogs. Uh, Clive wrote a book, "Dog Is Love," and can you first off, can you give people a little bit of your background um, because you didn't start with dog research, right? No, sure. So I've always been fascinated by the minds of other species. I, I, you know, I remember when I was a kid and we were going to the moon and, you know, maybe now we're going to Mars. I don't know. And there's, you know, people get excited about life on other planets, but I've, I've always felt we don't really understand the life on our own planet all that well, especially from a psychological point of view, what kind of minds do other species have? And so for years, I was a kind of a more standard issue sort of animal psychologist. And we mainly study rats and pigeons because it's like what we always studied. And so we do what we've always done. But there came a point where I was getting kind of tired of that. And I realized that I wasn't only interested in the minds of animals. I was actually very interested in how people and animals interact. And there's no animal that people have had a longer relationship with than the dog, you know, 15,000, maybe even 20,000 years. There's no animal we've had a longer relationship with, no animal we have a more intimate relationship with, most of us. And so about 15 years ago, I decided to throw in the pigeons. And um, and since then, I've been studying the human-dog relationship in in all its forms. And, and I must say, it, it you know, it never it, it never gets boring. It never ceases to fascinate me. Just just what dogs are and how people interact with them. Right at the moment, I uh, I posted a photograph on Twitter of a dog licking a baby's ass, and um, <laughs> because 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 that's what dogs do in some parts of the world, right? This is in Africa, or in a very poor part of Africa, and it's it's really interesting how animated. You know, social media people get about this. A lot of people really don't want to believe that this could be a thing that really happens. And plenty yeah. of other people have seen their dog try and eat their own poop. And so they're quite <laughs> aware that dogs will if you give them half a chance. So it never ceases to be exciting. I, re- I remember <laughs> I, I asked you specifically. Um, it's funny. This, this is how much you stuck out to me, Clive, because it, <laughs> it, 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 it's it's difficult to remember a year and a half back and remember any conversations that I had <laughs> but I remember I remember you um, asking you on stage 
why is it so hard to give dogs medicine when <laughs> they'll happily eat poop what's the, what's the deal i don't know if you happen to remember my response to it no, I don't. it was I don't. so quick you said well have you tried eating the dog's medicine first <laughs> and delivering it that way well there uh, you go <laughs> so i was thinking this i so you're I, I never uh, I never check what episode number I'm recording, but you you got to be somewhere in the ballpark of of 300 or 50 or so scientists that I've interviewed for this show. Had another couple hundred on uh, my stand up science show, and I often just kind of look up a university, see what's going on. I don't really have an eye out for too much in particular. Just hey, this looks like interesting research. I want to hear about that. That's how I typically booked both of my shows um, before COVID. And I think you're about the only dog researcher that I came across. I'm sure there was more out there and maybe whatever happened. But I was thinking today, how is you, you talk about rats and pigeons and, and how everyone's doing that for research. How is there not... A, line of people trying to get into dog research they're one of the most beloved interesting every dog owner is a dog research of sorts in their own yeah, right yeah, yeah. how is it yeah. not a bigger field well that's that's an interesting question shane i mean certainly in terms of public enthusiasm public enthusiasm is limitless and understandably so right i mean if you live with a dog as almost half the population does how can you help but be fascinated by these animals and wonder what your dog's thinking? But that's not how, you know, you, if, if you want to see what gets done, you have to follow the money. And, you know, the, the National Science Foundation has no particular interest in dogs. There's a historical feeling, I think it's fading somewhat now, that there's a historical feeling that dogs aren't real animals. You know, biologists want to study wild animals. Domesticated animals are sort of like almost Frankenstein monsters. They're human creations. They're not for real. So for a long time, there was, you know, a lack of interest from from that side of science. And then the, the biggest source, well, one of the biggest sources of science funding in the US today is the National Institutes of Health. Well, although it doesn't say so in its name, obviously the National Institutes of Health is the National Institutes of Human Health. And so they will fund some research on dog, you know, dog-child interaction, if it looks like that has implications for the child's health, psychological health, and so on. But obviously, it's a bit of a long shot, right? I mean, they're spending money on, I don't know, they're spending money on COVID research now, and they spend money on research into cancer and liver disease and goodness knows what. But dogs are clearly not a major part of that. And so, you know, I mean, I didn't shift towards dogs, Shane, until I was older and had tenure and could afford to take a risk because it's not an obviously very fundable uh, direction mm. to push your research into. Fortunately, it's not very expensive. You know, we don't need, there's no fancy machinery. Um, so it's not very expensive. And um, it's not really a major theme in my book, Dog is Love, but a great deal of the research we do is dedicated towards dog welfare. And, and there are charities around the country and around the world that support that kind of work. So we're very dependent on on private charitable foundations. Mm. That's really interesting. I I uh, I wonder if you know Barbara Natterson. 
Um, no. Well, well, she, I, I had her on uh, last December. I think she, I think one of her books is called Zubiquity. Um, oh, I've heard of the book. Yeah, I haven't read that. I'm, I'm actually reading her book Wildhood right now, which is about adolescence mm-hmm. throughout the animal kingdom. But I, I had her on and um, a while back, and she said she had, she was a uh, doing cardiology work and then got called to a zoo to look at you know some gorilla with a bad heart or whatever, and and started noticing all of these really important parallels and things that things that veterinarians at zoos were realizing about health that we weren't understanding about humans. And right. so it's, it's amazing. Just, uh, seems like such a big oversight. It seems like there's a lot of, a lot of answers and a lot of things that we can learn about ourselves from the things that are, uh, right around us. Oh, absolutely. This is called in veterinary medicine. They call this the one health initiative. The idea that medical interventions developed for one species could be helpful for an animal, a non-human, could be helpful for our own species. And so that's certainly a developing a, de- a developing a developing move. But uh but it, it you know it remain I'm I'm not a medical researcher anyway, yeah. so I'm not particularly well suited for the National Institutes of Health at the best of times. Um and and the psychology of different species is different, you know. So which is part of what makes the world a wonderful place. Of course, it'd be very boring if we were surrounded by, you know, if 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 dogs were not actually dogs, but just people in furry suits with tails, <laughs> that would be very dull. It's much more fun that we're all different. Uh, so, well, let's get into your book a little bit. I So first off, I, I picked up that you said that dogs kind of maybe split from wolves around 20,000 years ago or so. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. there... That's that's just from kind of archaeological records and stuff, I imagine. Is there strong evidence for when they started really becoming domesticated and and so integrated with human life in the way that we uh, sort of see it today or similar? Well, so strong evidence. No, there's not strong evidence. I mean, the thing what's so interesting is obviously there were people around, right? People have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. I don't know exactly how long people have been around, but people have been around a lot, lot longer. Mm-hmm. And so when certain wolves started to sort of form an association with certain people, let's say maybe 20,000 years ago, there were people there seeing it going on. But of course, it's long before people kept records in any meaningful sense. They did. There were human artworks 20,000 years ago, but there are no human artistic representations of dogs or really wolves back then. So the records are unbelievably thin. And all you can really do is you look at the bones of the animals. And the problem is, the problem is, you, you know, you think wolf big wolf you think dog oh cute little dog but of course in the first thousands of years there wasn't such a major distinction you know wolves are in any case very diverse animals in different parts of the world you get different sizes and shapes of wolves anyway so then you want to say well these particular wolves are different enough from the other wolves that they must have been the earliest dogs it's a very very difficult game to play you do get geneticists getting into the game because they have ways of looking at the genome 
and they reckon they can tell, you know, you count up how many differences are there between the wolf genome and the dog genome, you have some estimate of how fast a genome can mutate. And so you work backwards and you say, with this many differences, they must have split this long ago. But that's a very, very rough shot method when you're considering what are in evolutionary terms very, very short time intervals, you know, 15 to 20,000 years ago. That's nothing for evolution. This kind of method, which you can do with humans and chimpanzees, right? You look at the human genome, you look at the dog genome, you see, you count how many differences there are, you have a sense of how fast the genetic material mutates, and you can say, well, given how similar human and chimp DNA are, humans and chimps must have split, and I'm afraid I don't know the answer because I'm not the primate expert, but I think a few million years ago. And yeah. on that scale, millions of years, it's a tolerably useful method, but on a scale of 10 to 20,000 years, it's pretty useless. So it's right. extremely difficult to pin down, extremely difficult to pin down. What we know is that by the time the Ice Age ended, 13, 14, 15,000 years ago, depending where you live, by the time the Ice Age ended, people had dogs. There were definitely animals that were that were different, a little bit different from wolves, and that people were living with in a completely different way. So it's a field of area of archaeology full of controversy, but the earliest skeleton that everybody agrees is the skeleton of a dog was found in Germany, and it was found sleeping, lying, dead with two deceased human beings. Two people were buried and their dog was buried with them. Their puppy was buried with them. And, uh, you know, that that's a very strong hint that these people were, were living a new, in a new kind of relationship with an animal, a relationship that hadn't existed before. Interesting. And what about, um, what about uh, you, you kind of talked about there wasn't really dog or wolf cave etchings like who we see some buffalo or something in a yeah. cave etching what, what about some of the first kind of uh, um written uh transcriptions is there any so the so the the earliest records are well there are hints of course as i say that there are hints going back before this fifteen thousand year old dog skeleton but the the earliest the earliest things we have are skeletons and they're skeletons found close by people and they're smaller kinds of beasts so they're probably dogs then we have scratchings edgings on stone and interestingly the earliest um art representations are in uh, what's now saudi arabia and the sahara desert because eight ten thousand years ago that was actually quite a moist area and there are there are quite clearly um, etchings of dogs, even on leashes, uh, in Saudi Arabia, in what's now in what's now desert, but wasn't uh, eight or ten thousand years ago. So that's like eight thousand years ago. We get artistic representations. The archaeological remains get richer and richer. So there are people in Turkey going back to talking about dog poop. There are people in Turkey studying dog poop 
at sites in in that part of the world from five six thousand years ago which are really interesting because they can still you know find out what the dogs were eating and they can see that the dogs were scavenging on meat that people had captured and chewing the bones and they anyway there's all that kind of good stuff and then the writing about dogs that starts um well pretty much with the earliest writing uh, uh the the ancient egyptians have tombs you know fantastic paintings of tombs over three thousand years old and you begin to get a little bit of of writing there's actually one case of a what must have been a tomb created just for a dog with an inscription that actually says the king had this tomb made for his dog and it gives the name of the dog which i can't pronounce ancient egyptian the oberufjibuf or something like that <laughs> the king had this tomb made for the dog who was his guard and the king wanted this dog to be honored and he filled the tomb with incense and fine linen uh, and, you know, so so people were making a big fuss about dogs as far back in recorded history as we have people's thoughts about anything. That to me is an amazing thing. You yeah. go back to the very earliest writing about anything and you can find people writing down how much they loved a dog. It's amazing. So, yeah, so it clearly goes back further. And thus, coincidentally, people just got turned on to dogs at the exact same time they they started writing things. Yeah, uh, wow. Uh, so th that's that's interesting. Leashes go back that far, too. I Do you think that, because I, I, I wonder how some of that evolution started, if it, if it was wolves getting, getting scraps of food over time, or if they were, if there was wolves being captured or I mean so I, I think Shane the reason that 20,000 20,000 just sounds like a round number plucked out of thin air yeah but 20,000 years ago was a very interesting time right so so the ice age ended as I say 12 13 14,000 years ago but it lasted a bloody long time the ice age went on for over a hundred thousand mm. years which, you know, I don't like global warming, but the idea of an ice age, I don't like that at all. Right. And um, during that period, you know, even in an ice age, there are good days and there are bad days. There are good years and there are bad years. You know, it's not it's not freezing. It's not equally freezing all day, every day. It, it waxes and wanes. 20,000 years ago is called the the um, the peak of the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago was the very worst period of the last ice age and what that meant was you've got these ice sheets coming all the way down from the poles so a lot of the globe is useless because it's covered in thick sheets of ice but what I only learned recently is that perhaps paradoxically the ice age was also extremely dry because so much of the Earth's water was locked into these enormous ice sheets, the land that remained was frozen desert, so that most of the Earth's surface was completely uninhabitable 20,000 years ago. And what that means is that people and other species found themselves trapped together in small areas that were habitable. 
And so that probably or contributes to why dog domestication, wolf domestication really, would have started at that time because the people and the wolves and the mammoths and the deer and the horses and the every, you name it, all the species on the planet are trapped in these smaller areas that they cannot get out of because in one direction there's a wall of ice and in another direction there's a frozen desert. You can't move in any direction. So they're wow. forced into closer proximity to each other. And what that means is, I mean, I'm glad I didn't live then, right? I mean, I really don't like the sound of it at all, but hunting was really easy because you were surrounded by all these prey animals that couldn't get away from you. And you were in enforced proximity to wolves and the potential that exists for a relationship to develop, which I'm convinced initially was because the wolves would scavenge on the human hunting kills because people, you know, you could catch a deer. I mean, I couldn't, but maybe you could. People catch deer, they catch <laughs> animals, but they never sure. eat all of them, right? I mean, there's always loads of it that you, that's, that's useless to a human being. And whenever you do that, whenever you have people settled in one place and they're hunting and they're gathering, well, they make they make piles of trash. They make mounds of trash. You know, archaeologists call them middens. And I used to live in Florida. There are quite substantial hills by the seashore in certain places. And these are just man-made, human-created mounds of uh, primarily seashells are what you find down there. But, you know, we we would have made piles of bones and gristle and hoofs and all the other stuff we don't like. And other animals would have come along and started chewing on it and gnawing on it. And my, you know, many parts of the third world, that's still how life goes on. I mean, the, the rubbish dumps in uh, India and Africa, they're full of wild animals gnawing on what people don't want. And some of those animals are scary and people don't like that, but not much you can do about it. So to this day, you know, there's studies in Scandinavia and in Alaska, wolves are scavenging on city trash dumps in, in those kinds of places. And, mm. um, and over time, people become tolerant of their own local wolves. And over generations, the local wolves become tolerant of the people and become, you know, they're no longer going out hunting. So they become kind of maybe a bit punier, maybe their jaws are less powerful. And um, and maybe the people sort of over generations come to think it's maybe quite a good thing that you've got these kind of puny wolves that live on the trash that are not as dangerous as real wolves. And they will make a noise if any real wolves or bears or lions or tigers show up. And, you know, that's kind of handy. Right. So. Yeah, um, so so you got the just the beginnings there of of a relationship. It has to work for both partners. Otherwise, it's not a relationship. A scary alarm call that just eats your scraps and doesn't threaten you. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't eat your children all that often. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. You would think too if you if you come, a, especially if you, because uh, I I can see trying to be the first person in your in your tribe to domesticate a adult wolf might might take some level of uh, 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 bravery or, or risk or recklessness. But certainly if you came across a pup, um, that well, right. you, you could, you could see that um, happening pretty well, easily. People, 
People still do that. It's a natural human inclination. Pups are cute. Everybody finds puppies cute. Mm-hmm. Wolf puppies are just as cute as dog puppies, as cat kittens. Um, the, the, the problem is that as they grow, they get to be dangerous. So can, I t- can I tell you a story? Of course you can. So some years ago, I went to Israel looking for things related to the origins of dogs. There was a belief that the earliest dog, the dogs may have originated in Israel, but that's now largely put aside. But I visited on my last day in Israel, I visited a kibbutz, kibbutz Afakim, where I was put in touch with a documentary filmmaker who had wanted to make a documentary actually about the origins of dogs. And he'd adopted a couple of wolf pups, three or four wolf pups. And, um, and it's very interesting, you know, a, a kibbutz is sort of, it's more like how our ancestors lived thousands of years ago than is life in most modern American cities, right? Where I live, Phoenix, Tempe, Chandler, Gilbert, blah, 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 four and a quarter million people. That's nothing like how people lived thousands of years ago. But a kibbutz of just, you know, maybe a thousand people, um, uh, kids playing together, uh, that's a little bit, a little bit more like how people used to live. And mm-hmm. so if we're going to think about, well, what would it be like if people started adopting wolves intentionally? This is a little bit closer. And this guy did adopt these wolves intentionally and he raised them in his family. But I was able to speak to other people at the kibbutz. They were, they were pretty furious with him. I mean, it was a very uncomfortable thing for a kibbutz, a community, children running around and playing uh, to have this guy's pet wolves wandering around. They weren't happy with it at all. And they forced him to cage these animals up and keep them behind secure fences because it just wasn't practical. And actually, he himself had these enormous scars all down his arm. I only saw his arm. I suspect if he'd taken his pants off, I would have seen scars on his legs as well. But he only showed me his arm. He had wow. massive scarring down wow. his arms. It's not... It's not um, it's not an easy thing. It's and it's it's not really a smart thing, you know. I mean, it, it's it's cute when they're young, but they inevitably become problematic as they get older. So no pet wolves. Um, no. So what's that? Uh, what's that study that took the most timid wolves and the, bred the them fo- over? You mean the fox study? You mean fox oh, study? is that? Oh, is that yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what it was? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I've seen that as well. That's out in Siberia. That's mm-hmm. in, um, uh, yeah, in, in Akademgorodok, which is just outside Novosibirsk, which is the capital city of Siberia. And I went and visited there too. And that's very, very interesting. So back in the 1950s, a Soviet scientist, Dmitry Bilyaev, decided to see if he could intentionally create a new domesticated animal. And he was obviously interested in the history of the dog, but you don't want to do this with wolves or dogs because there's dogs and wolves interbreed. So if you were to do it with modern wolves and it worked out, somebody might criticize you for saying that, well, the wolves you worked with may have already had dog genes in them. So it would be a bit messy. But foxes are sufficiently closely related to dogs and wolves that anything you might do with foxes would be telling you something about the history of dogs. But foxes have a different arrangement of their chromosomes so that it can be absolutely guaranteed that foxes could not, would not, did not, will never 
mate with dogs or wolves. So foxes mm-hmm. are interesting because they're somewhat wolf and dog-like, but it's important that they are genetically cut off from dogs and wolves. And starting in 1958, Belyaev took the friendliest, most timid foxes in each generation and made them just those most friendly handful of percent, up no more than 5%, became the parents of the next generation. They only breed once a year, so one generation, one year. And he did this from 1958, and it's still going on today. He died in the 1970s, if I remember correctly. But it was quite clear within a decade that the punt he was taking paid off. And he produced foxes. I've seen them myself. You open, you know, they live in cages. They're not free ranging. They're not in anybody's home most of the time, unless somebody buys one and adopts it. They breed them. They just keep them in cages and you open the cage door and this fox just jumps into your arms. I mean, it's really (laughs) astonishing. And in many ways, it's friendlier than a dog would be. A dog raised entirely in a kennel. If you introduced it to a stranger, it would probably be kind of wary of that stranger. But these foxes have no, no inhibitions whatsoever. They are just totally... Just totally loving on you. I have this photo of myself not quite being kissed, but being touched on the cheek by by the mouth of of one of these foxes because they they're just so amazingly friendly. And they also develop bushy tails like many breeds of dog have, which you would say bushy. I mean, upturned foxes don't have upturning tails, but these things came along the some of these physical traits and mottled coats, which you wouldn't normally see in foxes. These physical traits came along with the selection that was solely for behavioral traits. So it's a heck of a, a heck of a thing. For a long time, scientists in the West were skeptical about it. We thought, although, although it's hard to see what the motivation would have been, it was such a, such a crazy story that we thought maybe the Russians were trying to string us along in some way. It was, it was, there has been, I don't think so much anymore, but there has been skepticism among Western scientists as to whether this could have really happened. Hmm. But, you know, if you can, it's not cheap to go there, but the if scientists to scientists, they're perfectly welcoming. And yeah, it's a real thing. It's astonishing. Wow. Well, what about, uh, so through the modern history then of, of evolution, I wonder maybe things became a little um, clearer is when there was more splits because I'm, I'm, I'm curious how, how we went from, okay, you, you have a, a wolf that turns into a more domesticated, what, what we would think of as a dog. And then I, I imagine most of those dogs were fairly similar. Maybe they moved with humans and, and there was a little a bit of a split along the way, like a, a, a cow and the, America is very different than a cow in India, but Indian cows are very similar. American cows are very similar, but dogs. Now you have this explosion of Chihuahua to uh, German Shepherd to Labrador and everything in between. When when did that start happening? Sure. Well, so Shane, that's that's you know that's an amazing question, and I think that something there's no there's no one process it's not the outcome of one process it's the outcome of at least two distinct processes 
Process number one. Okay, first process. Any animal that is distributed widely across the surface of the planet, including like us, exists in quite a diversity of forms because the kind of, I mean, we have air conditioning and everything and heating, but the, until very recently, the kind of body you needed to survive in the far north, in the cold places, obviously the far south as well, Terra del Fuego, is quite different from the kind of body that you need to survive in hot places. And this is still present in human populations today. Americans of the same ethnic heritage born in the south of the United States grow up to have different body proportions than their cousins who are, who are born and grow up in Alaska. Even though we have heating and we have air conditioning, you need different body forms to cope with different temperatures. And of course, we see that people from different parts of the world have different um, skin color because, you know, if you, I mean, the kind of skin color that you and I have is great for places in the far north where the ultraviolet is very weak. But where I now live in Phoenix, Arizona, this is completely the wrong skin yeah, color to have. You, and I you don't have a, a natural sunscreen. Exactly. And I spent a decade in Australia, which has the highest skin cancer rates in the world because you've got this unbelievably powerful UV and you've got these people of Northern European stock living there. Okay. So what's true in our species is true in every species. Wolves, before we started wiping them out, wolves existed everywhere from the equator to the Arctic Circle, all through the Northern Hemisphere. And they had different forms because they were suited to different climates. Nowadays, if I say, picture a wolf, what pops into your head is a big animal with thick fur. And that's because the only wolves left in the United States anywhere, really, are way up in the North in the cold environment where we never quite wiped them out. But you know, there were wolves here in here in Arizona. I mean, there's only like a hundred of them left. We call them Mexican wolves and they're much smaller. They are much finer fur, you know, so there always were what biologists call land races of wolves and dogs being similarly diverse around the planet there always were land races of dogs. And when you look at the earliest pictorial representations, the tombs of ancient Egypt, uh, ancient Greek pictorial representations, and so on, you can pick up that as far back as there's any record of dogs at all, there are at least a few different body forms. Bigger, heavier animals in cold places, slimmer animals in warm places. Okay. So land races is part one, but then humans started getting interested in what dogs look like and how they act. And I cannot say with certainty when this really started to happen, but I can, I can tell you two stories. One story is you can, the ancient Egyptians who were people who were recording artworks continuously from like 5,000 years ago, right up to 2,000 years ago. And you can look and you can see that at a certain point around 3,000 years ago, miniature dogs appear. And that's very, very interesting. Dwarfism is a genetic abnormality that can occur in any mammal. There are humans who are dwarfs. There, uh, there was a thing in the news. There was a dwarf giraffe at some zoo somewhere, right? 
you can have a genetic accident and ka-ching, you're only one third the size that all the other members of your species are. Now, in nature, that happens from time to time, but those individuals don't survive because they can't run as fast, they can't, you know, what, what use is a one-third size giraffe? How's it ever going to eat the leaves on the trees, right? <laughs> so, so when that happens, it dies out immediately in nature. So it's very, very interesting that the ancient Egyptians start showing at a quite identifiable point, they start making artistic representations of dwarf dogs. And what that means is, that they must have, somebody must have said, oh my goodness, this one's really tiny. Isn't that cute? If we could just find another one, we could put them together and they could have children and then we'd have a whole load of them. And that's what they must have done. They must have recognized that there was something interesting about this animal. And they must have had some very basic understanding that if you bred like with like, you could get more like that and that this would be cute and would be fun. And so, so you get that kind of human intervention, human messing around starts to happen. And then, you know, the Romans who wrote books about dogs, they say things like, hey, in India, they have these really interesting dogs. In the British Isles, they have these other dogs that can run much faster than the dogs we have now. And so they must have started to identify the different land races as their empire got bigger and they see different kinds of dogs in different places. And they're like, this is really cool. Let's hold on to these and um, let's keep them breeding together. And so that must have bumbled along with a very primitive understanding of genetics. Well, no understanding of genetics, very primitive understanding of inheritance very primitive measures. They had collars, they had leashes, they could they could make uh, kennels, primitive understanding of how to keep animals separate so that the distinctness of them would be maintained right up until the middle of the 19th century when finally they're developing a, a close to modern understanding of inheritance. And, and this was especially my own people, the British at first, were the first to go completely nutso at like, well, let's get the smallest ones, breed them together, and they'll have small offspring, and then take the two smallest from the litter and make them have sex together, make these brother and sister have sex together, smaller, 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 let's see how tiny we can make them, or bigger, 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 let's see how big we can make them, or, you know, we want them to have, you know, whatever. And that's yeah. the whole explosion of um, the whole explosion of dog breeds, which is really, you know, in this in this framework, this is a very modern phenomenon. I mean, a dog like the German Shepherd, which is now so popular, didn't come into being until the early years of the 20th century. The Golden Retriever, the most popular dog that was ever invented, was created because there was a Scottish Lord. You know, they had retrievers, right? A retriever is a dog you know, bang, bang, you've got your gun, your rifle, the bird falls down. You don't want to have to go and collect what you've killed. You have a dog. It goes and gets it for you. That's called a retriever. And they were primarily black until this Scottish Lord goes and visits a friend in some other part of the British Isles. And they go to the circus and there are these Russian dogs at the circus that are orange, yellow, gold. It's like, wow, this is so cool. Imagine wow. if I had golden retrievers, nobody would be able to confuse their retrievers with my retrievers. My retrievers would really stand out. Wouldn't that be cool? And so that's exactly what he does. And this is the 1860s when this is happening, which in this in this frame is very, very recent, very, very modern. So yeah, totally part of it. 
Well, that that's interesting because that that seems very connected to wealth and conspicuous consumption and oh, advertising absolutely. and absolutely and yeah. scarcity and yeah. and that that sort of thing. I mean, you you look at you look at today of 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 the dogs uh, that that um, you know wealthy people pay x amount of uh but what what was the person that just had her dog napped recently the um oh yeah 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 the, the who was that yeah singer it, it was mm. it was it, i think it was lady gaga or something like yes, that yes it was yeah, it was yeah. it was and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, she she was almost almost a little too popular of a singer for me to remember her name but it happened <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but 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 that's you you see that today you know that where where people are yeah. still which by the way can we just a, a quick aside are, what what are, i mean what do you think about all of this uh, this inbreeding um stuff going on today with this the uh, the pedigree and and kind of what well what so so first chain i'll say that just you know when you're choosing your spouse your partner you're entitled to have whatever you know you like girls with blonde hair good for you blue mm-hmm. eyes good for you you know we're all entitled to have our preferences right that's fine that's fine but what and so if somebody wants a golden retriever i'm cool with that if they want a border collie i'm cool with that I have no problem with any of that. But what people don't realize is that the purebred, purebred dogs that have the papers, like the one that recently won uh, the, the um, what's it called? Westminster Kennel, Westminster Dog Show, right? Mm-hmm. Those dogs are unbelievably inbred. I mean, they have bred brother to sister, father to daughter, and they do this this has been going on for over a century. These dogs are stunningly inbred. There was a study in Britain that looked at the genetics of all the pugs that were registered in Britain, of whom there were many thousands. And the geneticists looked at the DNA of these dogs and identified that although there were thousands of individuals, they only had as much genetic variation as you would typically find in a few dozen dogs, that they Mm. were almost clones of each other. Now, the thing is, you might say, well, so what? You know, if that's what it takes to give the dog the curly tail that I want or the whatever. But the problem is, the problem is that when you select like that, you act, you're you selecting for things you want. You're selecting for a certain shape of a ear, a certain color of eye. But the method you're using is so crude that you accidentally capture other genes. All of us carry genes that if they were allowed to be expressed would do us harm. But because we're fairly genetically diverse individuals and our parents were not each other's brother and sister, hopefully, you know, the usually we're not usually our parents aren't sharing the same recessive traits. And so they're exactly, not expressed. exactly the recessive right. traits, the dangerous bad traits are hidden because that's that's how genetics works. And um, and you look at a Westminster start- dog show, and and you're getting a bit of survivorship bias there. You're not you're not seeing all the yeah. times that that went horrifically wrong. You're you're seeing well, exactly. the the time that it went right. Exactly, and so and so these inbred lines of dogs they carry terrifyingly high rates of uh, recessive genetic disease, which is mm-hmm. often cancer, but can be many other kinds of disease. And there are some breeds of dog. 
that it's more or less guaranteed that they will get this or that form of disease in their lifetime. And that's just so unnecessary because, as I say, I'm not not telling people you cannot love a dog that has <laughs> golden hair or whatever you whatever. You know, that's all cool. I'm I'm completely cool with that. But nowadays, we have a so much better understanding of genetics that you could have that without the disease. And that's really something that we have to move towards because it's a, it's, a, it's a cruelty. Yeah. The Germans have a word for it, Quellzucht, which is cruel breeding. You know, Germans have a word for everything. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> interesting. I, well, I mean, because I have to say, you'll, you'll probably push back on, on me here, but and I'll get blowback from my pug fans out there, but I see a pug that I know is, is kind of as short as you can breed a snout to be before it can't breathe yeah. any longer. Yeah. And the thing just looks like it's it's uh, uh, having trouble breathing through its entire existence yeah, yeah, yeah. because cool. that was cute to you yeah. Yeah, yeah i yeah. i will i will say here's here's a picture of the last dog that i had in a relationship this is <laughs> mr don nichols he was a he was a shih tzu mix or something and we went to uh, I was dating a, another comedian at the time, and she really wanted a dog, but we were both around the road a bunch. And I was like, we can foster dogs while we're back and help out and visit, and you can get your dog fixed, but we can't. And we went to go foster one, and we saw that, and it was a third of the size that it was a runt of the of the litter. <laughs> it actually had a, a, a liver problem that, uh, that kind of resolved it itself eventually but early on in life wasn't able to digest protein properly and so it was mm -hmm. a third of the size that it was supposed to be and it's amazing when you talk about like dwarfism or something where we saw that and it broke our brain how cute it was it's yeah. like well that's yeah. our dog that's our dog yeah, now yeah, there yeah, was yeah, yeah. i i yeah. was so opposed to getting a dog and the moment i saw that thing i was like well it's over that's yeah. the cutest thing i've ever i've ever yeah, seen yeah, yeah. it is it, you you've probably seen the uh the evolution of mickey mouse um mm, stuff mm. too right where the where yeah. the early drawings of mickey mouse are like this uh almost devious looking like narrow headed kind of thing and then mm -hmm. over time they made the eyes bigger and the head rounder and disproportionately large and just looked more and more like a baby and we just have these we have these um uh uh we have these preferences, which it, you, you've, I'm sure you've seen the the videos of different animals like bonding with other animals that are that are pups or whatever. Some goat will yeah. really hit it off with a kitten or whatever, and and uh, that must just be uh, a, a part of something that gets hijacked along the way, where you have yeah, all these yeah, mechanisms yeah. in place to like. When it happens, you really care for your own baby, and then yes, and then yes. a pup of another species shares the same traits, and it hijacks those kind of reward and nurturing um, exactly. systems in the mind. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Could you maybe uh, talk about because I want to get into your research? Could could you give a, a little bit of a uh, man? Of course, this conversation's blowing right by. My goodness, I I knew once we started talking about dogs, I I, I want to make sure and get to your research. I was wondering if first we could do just a little bit of because um, we've already covered some of some of the the history of 
dog research. Like when it first, everyone knows Pavlov, uh, (laughs) of course, um, is is, uh, probably the most, one of the most famous science stories that there is. Everyone's heard of Pavlov's dogs. Um, Maybe outside of that, people have heard Freud or Darwin or, uh, you know, a few other Galileo or something like that, but Pavlov's dog. And then, and then you don't know, I can't name another dog researcher off, off the top of my head. Could you break us uh, down a little sure. history of the research? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So dogs were there at the very beginning of animal psychology, right? Pavlov, St. Petersburg, 1870s, 80s, 90s, right up until he died in 1936, I think. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't, all that interested in dogs for their own sake. He was trying to understand a basic process of of learning, a very basic principle of learning, of forming associations. Uh, he just happened to use dogs for his own historical reasons. And the process that he was studying is actually a lot easier to study in, say, rats. And since rats are like yay big, and uh, that makes them a lot easier to keep in cages in a laboratory, People very quickly after after Pavlov's death, people very quickly lost interest in studying dogs. And so there was a long, quiet period. The psychologists of that kind didn't care what animal they studied, so they just wanted to study small, cheap animals. The biologists, as I think I already mentioned, had this skepticism about dogs because they were like human-created, and so they weren't real animals. And so... All through the 20th century, really, there was precious little interest in the study of dog behavior, even though at a practical level, here we are, you know, we're all living with dogs. And um, most of the time, it's good, clean, fun. But every now and then somebody gets hurt. And of course, dogs get into trouble and get euthanized. So it's not without consequences for both sides of the partnership. But for the longest time, there was really no scientific interest, very, very little scientific interest. And then at the very end of the 20th century, two then young scientists, as far as I know, completely independently started studying dogs. And one was Brian Hare, who's an American now at Duke University. And the other is Adam Miklosi, a Hungarian at a university with a name I cannot pronounce in Budapest, Hungary. And as, as I say, as I believe they worked completely independently in the late 1990s. And they were interested in this overarching question what makes dogs special? What is the secret of dog success in a human-dominated world? Because, you know, here's an interesting thing. I mean, you talk to an ecologist, and we are living through the most terrible period in the planet's history, where we have unprecedented numbers of species going extinct. And it's almost all our fault. We are changing the planet in ways that make it more and more difficult for many species to survive. So you have, people call it the Anthropocene, you have this human-driven wave of extinctions. And yet in among this sad story, there are a few happy stories. There are a very small number of species that find humans useful and find the presence of so many human beings on the planet to be a benefit to their own lives. And dogs are the example par excellence. There might be a billion dogs on the surface of the planet, which makes them by a very long margin, makes them the most successful and widespread large mammal on the surface of the planet. So McClosey and Brian Hare asking what, what's, what underlies this? How could dogs be so successful in human society? 
And they both came to the conclusion, which I believe they still hang on to, even though I'm convinced I've proved them wrong. <laughs> they still hold on to the idea that dogs have special forms of cognition, special forms of intelligence that enable them to better understand people and what people are up to than any other animal can. And that's mm. sort of where I came into it. When I started studying dogs myself in the mid 2000s, this viewpoint that Brian Hare and Adam McClosey were putting forward was gaining traction. And I thought it seemed very interesting. I've become known as a critic of their point of view. But honestly, I was not, I didn't go into it thinking this sounds stupid. I've got to prove them wrong. I just went into it thinking this sounds tremendously interesting and exciting. I'd like to try some of this for myself. I'd like to, I'd like to see what's going on and, and whether I could make a contribution. And it's then so what from was there, yeah. What was the idea? Uh, sorry, just for clarity, that no, no, that, that that perhaps there was there was a bit of um, uh, um, evolution was acting on on uh, the dog brain in a way that was kind of altering its theory of mind or, or something. And yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah. that was specific to humans in in some way. Was that kind of right. the premise? So we humans have ways of understanding each other, of grasping what each other mean, that psychologists call having a theory of mind. So mm -hmm. I have some sense that, you know, it's not just that I have a mind, you have a mind too. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I have a sort of an understanding of your mind, of what you're thinking of where you're going next. That's how we're able to have a conversation to a considerable degree. And that's believed to be a uniquely human character. And psychologists have studied our closest relatives, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, the other great apes. They can't find much, if any, evidence that other great apes think in that sort of a way. Then, what about dogs? Dogs actually, pet dogs, can succeed on the kinds of simple tests that were developed for use with chimpanzees to try and gauge whether they have any inkling of theory of mind. This all sounds rather abstract. I can make it concrete. It's, it's really quite simple. The most widely used test to look at whether an animal has a theory of mind was simply to point and to see whether the animal would go where you pointed. And if you do this with your chimpanzee, or your bonobo, or your gorilla, or your orangutan, you, they'll just like throw up their hands like, I don't know what he's on about. But if you do it with your dog, the chances are that most of the time, most people's pet dogs will go and investigate where they point. Now, this was just one, I, it's just the simplest and most easy to explain test that's been used of this type. Brian Hare was actually working with chimpanzees and he did this test himself with the chimps. They couldn't understand what he was doing. He went home to his family dog. You know, he was a very young guy at the, guy, at the time, a graduate student. He went home to his family dog. He tries this on his dog and his dog, ka-ching, goes where he points. Adam McClosey out in Budapest is doing the same kind of thing with people's pet dogs. And he finds, yeah, the dogs will go where you point. And so this led them to conclude that dogs, during the process of domestication, something had changed in their brain, something had evolved that gave them a more human-like form of theory of mind understanding than any other animal that had ever been tested. Hmm. And specifically, they also, both of them, tested wolves, and the wolves did not go where they pointed. So this convinced them that this was a derived characteristic. This was something that had evolved in the journey 
that some dogs took from wolf to modern dog. And so I, as I say, so I, that's I so this, that's yeah. where where you you kind of came into the field at right. this at this time. You were mm-hmm. you were interested in it. You wanted to know more. You and and uh, went about right. figuring out how and to I test would, it. We started out testing dogs for ourselves. This was Monique Udell was my first graduate student working on this. She's now a professor at Oregon State. Uh, yes, Oregon State University. And we tested dogs. And yeah, it's completely true. Most people's pet dogs go where you point. Yeah, absolutely. They're good at it. But then we got contact from an outfit in Indiana who have been hand rearing wolves since 1974. So they're very good. They're beautifully hand reared wolves. Wolf Park in Indiana. And obviously, it's very interesting to test wolves for yourself. And I still remember when we went out there. As it happens, it was my birthday. I forget which birthday, but it was my birthday. And um, the people out there contacted us because they'd been reading the literature, reading what Brian Hare and Adam McClosey were saying about how wolves wouldn't go where you point. And it didn't ring true for them. Right? They weren't themselves scientists, so they, they contacted us to see if we were interested to come out and carry out some tests on their animals. And so we did this, and actually their wolves were better at this than most people's pet dogs. The wolves at Wolf Park were really, really good at this. Mm. In the meantime, Adam McClosey in Budapest has tested some more wolves, and he's come round to our point of view on this. He says, yes, wolves can do it, actually. Brian Hare, I believe, still insists that wolves cannot, even though other people have. In <laughs> fact, there's now, there's now people have tested all sorts of different animals on this simple test, Oh and man, I, I love a good I love a good scientist uh um uh being called out on my show. <laughs> <what> I, <laughs> get a beef going. I should have had you both on. Um, well you can get I, him get him on before he says. I, I haven't I haven't spoken to him for a long time. What with the uh, pandemic and so on. It'd be interesting yeah, to know yeah. where he stands now. But yeah. um I've come around to the view that what make what matters if an animal is going to so now there are papers on thirty eight different species of animal that under certain circumstances will follow a human pointing gesture, and the crucial thing is it's not about what species the animal is, or whether it's a domesticated species or a wild species. What matters is that individual animal's experience of life. If that animal was hand reared by human beings from a very early age and has gone on through its life to interact with people, especially if people give the animal food with their hands, well, then you have an animal that's relaxed around people, that looks to people for its social relationships, that looks to people for food and other things that matter in its life, and that is used to paying attention to where the human's hand goes. Mm. And if that's the animal's life, then it doesn't matter whether it's a wolf or we tested bats, hand-reared bats, doesn't matter what species the animal is if it's had those right circumstances of life. And meanwhile, flip it over, if you get dogs, every dog is a member of a domesticated species, but if that individual dog has not had rich relationships with human beings, has not had the experience that the movement of people's limbs matters for that animal's survival and food and goodness knows what, 
Well, those dogs do not follow human pointing gestures. It's not about what species you come from, domesticated, wild, whatever. It's about you, the individual animal that we're testing today. What kind of a life around people have you had? And if your life has been full of people doing things and people are part of your life, you'll probably follow a human pointing gesture. And meanwhile, if not, then not. Wow. So, so this is real, uh, uh, a real testament to the influence of the environment and probably how, just how important um, the uh, different styles of dog ownership, um, I would, I would think can influence their, their pets. I would, I would have, uh, I, I would have, uh, who, who was the guy that, that doesn't, uh, um, isn't convinced by the wolf thing? What's his name again? Brian Hare. Yeah, I I probably would have, before talking to you, if I had to guess, I bet I would have sided with with him and and more of a kind of genetic influence. But so that's I, really interesting. I thought it to hear. was perfectly plausible when I first heard about it. I mean, as yeah. I say, people people don't believe me because I've become so associated with the oppositional point of view. But honestly, when I started this, I I thought it seemed I thought it seemed plausible. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so, so any any stray dogs, they're living probably vastly different lives and vastly different. Because I hear about people trying to take in stray dogs sometimes, and that's a that's a challenging bit. Of, it probably depends on what age you're getting them and and everything else. So how 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 difficult is it to take a stray dog and then domesticate it? Well, that's probably so a, that's probably so too broad general, of a question. So stray stray can be many different things, right? Yeah. I mean, strictly speaking, stray implies that the dog belonged to somebody and then it strayed, it, it wandered. Um, if 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 you think about parts of the world, it would be it would be safer to talk about unowned dogs, to talk about dogs that are not anybody's pet that don't live in anybody in particular's home uh, and indeed the majority of dogs on the world on the surface of the world are living like that I mean the existence we have with dogs in the United States in Canada in Western Europe that's a minority if you were to if I was to get in my car and drive three hours south to the Mexican border as soon as I crossed the border there would be dogs in the street. And there will continue to be dogs in the street as I drove all the way through Central America and all the way down South America. I mean, that's a long way, right? <laughs> and there, right. there would be street dogs, village dogs, feral dogs, stray dogs, whatever you want to call them, they would be everywhere. The same's true if I was to travel through Africa, everywhere. The kind of existence we have with dogs where we take it for granted that a dog belongs to somebody and lives inside their home with them, that's actually the minority situation. That does mm -hmm. exist in other parts of the world, but it's always just alongside street, feral, stray, whatever you want to call them, dogs. Even dogs living on the street have relationships with people. And people have done studies in India, in Kolkata, on the street dogs, where they've pointed at things for those dogs. And they find that some of those dogs, not all of them, some of those dogs do follow human pointing gestures. And mm. that's because they're still dependent on people for most of their food. Actually, India just passed a law 
saying that street dogs have the right to receive food from human beings, which is quite an interesting observation. Um, hmm. And in fact, I saw this myself in Moscow, where there are plenty of street dogs. And those dogs have to have a very, very attuned awareness of what people are up to, because some people will feed the dogs, but other people will kick them and beat them. I mean, there's no inhibition there. The dogs can be a nuisance. They can spread disease. Not everybody yeah. likes them. I, and so those dogs actually have to pay very close attention to what people are up to. That was uh, my my only experience with this is I've been to uh, Jamaica uh, I don't know a handful of times now and and there's there's people that domesticate dog have dogs and cats as pets and then there's a it's more the case that there's stray or feral ones around and and there's uh, you know farmers have a lot of concern about. Right. Some of the feral dogs harassing their livestock and stuff, and then there, and then there's whole issues of sometimes they'll poison the dogs that are right, uh, right, that are right. harassed, and then some sometimes people's pets then get poisoned too, and it's so yeah, it's, there's yeah. just a lot of uh, a lot of conflict. Yeah. No. So it's 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 a difficult, complicated uh, life for the dogs and indeed for the people. Right. I mean, mm. it it's a two way street of good and bad things. I mean, in India today, it's still the case that tens of thousands of people die of rabies, which is an especially horrible way to go. And dogs are the primary cause of that. But I didn't actually answer your original question. So your your question was, well, so what about adopting these dogs from the street? And I, I know people who do it. And I understand, I, I recognize the impulse that nudges people to do it. But honestly, I don't think it's a good idea. By and large, dogs that have had the freedom of the streets find the confines of a first world home very, very stressful and difficult to deal with. Even though obviously their life is in many, many ways improved. They're now getting veterinary care. They're getting vastly superior food. Nobody is going to beat them the way somebody might beat or poison them if they continued living on the streets. But, you know, we all are comfortable with the kind of life we grew up with and the life of liberty that those dogs had. It's difficult to take that away from them. And, mm. you know, I understand the impulse, but the, the United States is, generally speaking, a long way from those nations where dogs like that exist. I have met people in the United States who brought dogs in from Africa I mean, that's very, very expensive. That costs thousands of dollars to get a dog from Africa to the United States. If you have that kind of money and you care about those animals, then find a way to help the dogs and the people in the homes where they live. I mean, I think, and I can, I can say this as a Brit, I can talk about, about this kind of thing, I think. Um, because we have a pretty rotten history. I think there's something rather colonial in attitude in going in and saying, oh, these native people don't know how to take care of their animals. We must rescue the animals. That's a right. rather colonial attitude in my view. I think if you're concerned about how people live in Kenya or Mexico or wherever, lift the people and their animals will come too. That's what we see in the history of the West I mean, our own lives alongside dogs were not so different in the 19th century to how people today live in many other parts of the world. But as we got wealthier, so the conditions that we could offer 
our dogs and our cats um, mm. and even our children all all improved along the along the way so um uh, so going back to uh first off that's that's a wonderful thought uh and uh, and a good message but uh, going back to some of the theory of of mind stuff how cuz that's that's interesting to hear that i could uh have my you know pet dwarf giraffe would would know when i point in a certain direction as long as i raised it from let's do it which I mean, I I feel like I'm kind of a dwarf giraffe myself. I'm like I, I kind of have the build. Um, yeah. But uh, but how? So because I I guess I would have before this conversation, my intuition would have been, you know, you hear about people domesticating certain other primates or whatever. People want a pet monkey and. And uh, the the many issues that can come along with uh, with that, but but in in the right context, it seems like it actually could be done. I I see. Here's what I'm. I'll frame it like this: a specific situation. So I see pet raccoons on Instagram all the time, and it's I it, it makes my day. I I have I follow lots of raccoon accounts i i want a pet raccoon myself i know practically speaking they're probably a little too smart and a little too curious to uh <laughs> to really have have in your house but uh but in terms of uh, this condition from from the studies that you've done uh, to hear you say you can a, a bat can recognize you pointing it what what is the extent to which we can domesticate uh, an animal and live alongside it so long as we have it from the time that it's born? Sure. So Shane, so let's let's let's. I mean, I don't want to bog people down in terminology, but let's differentiate two things. Domestication yeah. is an evolutionary process by which okay. a population of animals, generation for generation for generation becomes, we could say, easier to make friends with. Yeah. Taming is a process that an individual undergoes. Oh, that's a great distinction. During an early phase of its life where that individual becomes willing to accept humans as its friends. Okay? Right. Dogs are a domesticated species or subspecies. That doesn't mean that every dog is tame. Most dogs are tame because it's really easy to tame dogs and most dogs grow up very close to people so that it's it's an easy process. It's so easy to tame dogs that a lot of people don't realize that if you don't tame your dog, you have a wild dog. Wild dogs are actually very rare because very few dogs grow up in the first few months of life away from any human beings, but they do exist. They do exist on the outskirts of Moscow in decaying ex-industrial areas. There are truly wild dogs that didn't have any interaction with people when they were young, and so they have not become tamed. Even though they remain members of a domesticated species, they're not tame. Meanwhile, the flip side is raccoons are not domesticated. They are not the product of generation after generation of animal that has evolved to get along easily with people. They are wild animals, but certain crazy individuals a group you are aspiring to, 
uh, <laughs> get them when they're young, yeah. keep them by them for you know most of the day, every day while they're young, and they succeed in taming them. The wolves at Wolf Park are tame because people at Wolf Park take the wolf pups from their mothers when they're 10 days of age, and then they keep them with human beings 24-7 for the next couple of months of their lives. There is this critical period in early life called the critical period for social imprinting, which is when any individual animal has to learn who are my kind. No animal is born knowing what species it belongs to. We all, when we open our eyes and our ears and our nose, we look around us, what kinds of beings are we confronted with early in life? And then for the rest of our lives, we go on with that programmed into us. These are the kinds of beings I'm going to have relationships with. Mm. Domesticated animals, that works much, much more easily than I with see. wild type animals. So that's part one, the distinction between tame and domesticated. Domesticated animals are easy to tame, but wild animals can be tamed. It just takes a lot more bother and effort. But people do it. People have pet wolves, pet chimps, pet monkeys, pet raccoons, pet squirrels. Who, if you were really determined to do this, I'd start with squirrels. Yeah. Who who was the oh, we're gonna get back to squirrels, by the way. But who okay. was the who was the uh the person that did the the chicks um uh, following him. Are you thinking um, Conrad Lorenz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conrad Lorenz, yeah. the um, Austrian Nazi Nobel Prize winner. The only, yeah, the only, yeah. the only Nazi to win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, kind of a kind of a yeah. uh, uh, dark history there. But early early on, he he discovered chicks would would have this. Uh, basically, the first thing that they see, yes, that basically yes. basically chicks have this, this, it, it's it's kind of innate because I was almost going to ask you about epigenetics earlier, um, but but the idea of kind of having this genetic um, flexibility from the start, where where you're responding to cues in the environment. Hey, the first big thing that you see. Just follow that thing. And right. evolutionarily, probably it was your mom. Right. So in wild animals, this window of opportunity is so constrained that it would be very, very unlikely that you would imprint. That's the term that uh, Lawrence taught us. It's very unlikely that you would imprint onto a different species than your own. Because in all likelihood, you're still going to be in the nest. You're still going to be in the den by the and that window of opportunity closes so quickly that the chances of it of another species getting into your social realm is very limited. Mm -hmm. That's something that domestication did to dogs. It extended that critical period, that imprinting period. It extended it for them so that now dogs easily make friends with people. You know, a dog living out on the farm will make friends with all the animals on the farm. Whether they make friends with it is a different question. But dogs have this, you know, this is the theme of my book. They have this very loving nature. They very easily form relationships. But I was going to say that there's a second part. So if you're yes. contemplating, if you're contemplating taming a wild animal as a pet, Part one is that it takes a lot of effort to tame a wild animal because that's something that domestication did, that it made it easier. And the other part is that even your tame wild animal, even though it loves you, can still be dangerous, can still be dangerous. 
I think I often talk about wolves and dogs. And I like to say that even a love bite from a wolf would really ruin your day. The point being that even positive social behaviors coming from your pet lion can be devastating to a human being. And these animals never have the social fluidity that we take for granted in our dogs, not so much our cats. And what I mean is that, yeah, if you adopt a raccoon, Shane, you can have a relationship with a raccoon and you may be pretty safe around it. But if I come and visit, your raccoon may not generalize the same social rules and pleasantries from you to me. I could still get bitten. So although I understand the appeal, I think we should we should celebrate the wonderful thing that we have in domestication and stick to domesticated animals for our pets. Yeah, well, it's also easier uh, on it's- them. Instagram isn't always the most accurate reflection of life, <laughs> of real and life what yeah. people's yeah. actual behind the scenes uh, happenings oh, is, is is like. Uh, so so the takeaway from that is if you're going to do anything flying squirrel, basically, if if the audience learns well, one thing today, <laughs> squirrel. I haven't actually noticed. It's a long time since I really went looking for this stuff on social media, and when I last went looking, which would be ten years ago, there were quite a few squirrels. And I read that there had actually been a Victorian enthusiasm for taming squirrels. I don't know why, but the Victorians were really into it. But even, you know, they have big, sharp teeth at the front, you know. You've got to mm. watch out. Flying mm. squirrels are kind of popping off on uh, on the social media right now. There's a, okay. lot of, there's a lot of great videos where there'll be like three flying squirrels like hanging out on a basketball hoop or whatever that a person owns. Uh-huh. And they just hold out their hand like that and they all jump and fly into its hand and they're trained to do oh, nice certainly looks wonderful on a on a video <laughs> <laughs> but um all right well i wanted to ask you so the the book is called dog is love which i encourage everyone to get um why and how your dog loves you now this is this is kind of a title that you wouldn't expect from uh from a scientist uh, uh, <laughs> sterilized lab coat and sure maybe we ring a bell and and you, you know you you could expect a title like the utility of of dog ownership or something like that and and you kind of mentioned do- guard dogs and everything early on being a, a potential part of a early evolution of dogs uh what what's uh why uh, why uh why dog is love why why try to tackle something that could be construed as sort of a wishy-washy um approach to thinking about about dogs well, so Shane, so I told you about the earlier phase of my research on dogs and comparing dogs and wolves. Yeah. And uh, I convinced myself and a handful of other people that what makes dogs special is not any cognitive or intellectual capacity, which then opens the question, what do I think makes dogs special? And in our research, we were finding that dogs are sh- dogs show what we call in our scientific publications hypersociability. <laughs> um, and so I could I could have I guess titled the book "Dogs Express Hypersociability," <laughs> but I like the idea. I like the idea of talking to people in a way that people can understand. I don't think there's much purpose in a science that more than could be possibly helped, of course, uh, that, that 
that hides behind obscure terminology right. and um and yeah hyper sociability is is a polysyllabic way of saying that dogs are extremely exceptionally loving which at one level is something everybody knows right everybody everybody pretty much everybody has that feeling but what I explore in the book is the idea that that feeling actually has some scientific meat on its bones, that there are studies that clearly show that dogs are, if anything, dogs are kind of weird, right? If you, there are, talking of what you can find on social media, there are some quite funny videos on social media. It seems to be a young man's thing, right? There are a few videos on social media where some young guys pretend to be dogs. And there's one very, very funny one, which is, I think, from somewhere in Eastern Europe or something, where the girlfriends are the humans with the leash and the boys are the dogs with the with the collars. And what's interesting that, that some of these videos capture quite well is that if you had a human friend who behaved in social terms, whose, whose outgoing nature matched what we take for granted in dogs, you would recognize that there's actually something really weird about that. That dogs have a, a level of outgoingness, a level of love that is that is really kind of weird. And so I wanted to have a title and I wanted to write the kind of book that would get across to anybody who, who's interested in dogs, would get across what I'm on about here and would demonstrate that there is in fact a scientific basis to understanding the very, very affectionate nature of our friends, the dogs. Have you seen the show Wilfred? I'm not well, the first person to ask you that. No, it's funny. It it. Uh, my wife's Australian, and the original Wilfred was from Australia. Yeah, and we watched a couple of episodes of the Australian, a couple of episodes of the American remake. But it doesn't actually match. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work yeah. for me. I don't believe. I don't believe that dog. I don't believe Will. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, what 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 about when you see the dog trainer shows on on TV? Uh, uh, you having uh, spent uh, quite a bit of of time researching dogs. How 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 much stock should people put in some of those things? It, if people. Uh, you know, I, I I bet I'll have a a certain number of listeners that tuned into this hoping there was a few dog training tricks or something like that. Where where would wow. you where would you point people? Um, so so I think there's a there's a sort of a tragedy in the most popular dog training shows. Not all of them by a long shot, but um, in our understanding of dogs, I think our scientific understanding is developing that the essence of what makes dogs special is their very affectionate, very loving natures. And what stems from that at a practical level is that we best go forward with our dogs, showing them gentle leadership. There's absolutely no point and no benefit bringing coercion and pain and all the kind of nonsense that you get in several of the most popular dog trainer shows, that's completely counterproductive. You can get the best outcomes for you and your dog by showing your dog gentle leadership, by using what people call positive reinforcement, treats and so forth, and kind words. That's, that's our dogs, you know, I mean, it's a common place to say it, but our dogs are somewhat like small children and you don't get good outcomes for your kids if you beat them 
And if mm-hmm. you if you attempt to dominate them, which is a, a severe misunderstanding of what that word means in the science of animal behavior, um, you get the best outcome by being reasonable and showing leadership and um, and using positive reinforcement, using rewards. That's that's the way to go forward. And it's a tragedy that as the science is becoming more and more coherent and clear about this, that nonetheless, this doesn't seem to be what uh, what people want to see on television. And, you, and we still have, I think we have a growing number, I don't follow it closely, but a growing number of, of dog trainers who present themselves, you've got to be the alpha and the big, the big guy. When the truth is, so this, this term dominance, right? This is, this is, it's interesting to talk about scientific terminology. Oftentimes in trying to talk to a broad public about science, we have the problem that our scientific word, like I use the word hypersociability, our scientific word is obscure and many syllables and what the hell is he on about? Let's just call it love. Okay. But then you also get situations where a science has picked up an everyday word, has picked up an everyday word and is now using it in a new, much narrower technical sense. And so in animal behavior, we use the term dominance. We use the term dominance in social groups of animals. Some animals control access to resources, resources, you know, food, drink, uh, sex, uh, shelter. Who decides where we're going today? These are resources that social groups of animals, wolves, chimpanzees, lions, monkeys, certain individuals dominate the group. But when we say dominate, we mean it in this special sense, controlling Mm -hmm. resources. Obviously, people use the word dominance in their everyday language. And in everyday language, it can mean a lot of other things, right? You could think about, you know, uh, that the New York Times of all things had an article about about online dominatrices. Do you know about this? (laughs) Apparently, there are guys, maybe you're one of them. Apparently, there are guys (laughs) who, who pay a woman who's only available to them online so that she will then degrade them and insult them and God knows what. Apparently people do this, right? I, this I've, is all I've, part, yeah. I, I've heard of uh, there's there's like financial um, dominatrix that yeah, just yeah, take your yeah. take your credit card and go yeah. go shopping with it. Yeah. That seems like a, a wonderful line of work that I, I need well, to right, find right, a way right. into. I don't know uh, if we could find suckers uh, but, like but, but but yeah, so so dominance means something different, and and perhaps the po- the popularity of of uh, these TV trainers says a little bit more about how humans respond to hierarchical structures wow. than how yeah. dogs do. Um, but the, the, so the the thing is, Shane, that yeah, we do dominate our dogs in the technical sense. Mm-hmm. If you are the one in your home who opens the doors and your dog cannot open a door. If you are the one in your home who can operate the can opener and get the can of dog food or the bag of kibble open, Mm -hmm. in our technical sense, that is dominance. So it is true in the narrow technical sense that we do dominate our dogs. Yeah. But that's as far as it goes. It doesn't, you know, who is the comedian who does, it's not you. There's another comedian does a wonderful skit 
about how he went to a dog trainer and the dog trainer told him that he had to dominate his dog if the dog was going to behave properly. And he gets into this whole riff about um, how he and his girlfriend now have to have dinner at 4.30 in the afternoon because it's essential that they eat before the dog does, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just complete nonsense what these people are peddling. And it's such a shame. It's such a shame when there are there are better trainers out there um, and... and uh, yeah, the, the, the world just doesn't seem to be ready for them, I guess. When you use a term like love or hypersociability, uh, um, how do you tease apart what is... Uh, it, uh, an example, you're, you're tied together a few things that you've kind of just mentioned. It, it, you're, you're laying in bed, you... You slept in. Um, uh, your little Don Lickles, the dwarf that shouldn't exist but somehow does, jumps up and he's licking your face, and he'd get in my nostrils sometimes. Awful. <laughs> uh, and and then uh, and then and he, but he's wagging his tail, and it's just the cutest thing that you've ever seen. But he also just needs to go outside to go poop. He needs you to turn that handle how how do you or, or or you see a see a dog begging for food sometimes you get a whine sometimes you get the cute cutest puppy dog eyes you've ever seen right on your lap how how do you tease apart i, I mean I, I don't know what what is like just some pavlovian kind of condition of which one of these tricks will get get me food and what is something that resembles more uh genuine-ish love or hyper sociability because certainly animals love coming up and cuddling with if they aren't cats they love cuddling with <laughs> us and and uh and stuff as well how how do you as a as a scientist kind of think about that and tease that apart just in sure. your own mind sure well i mean so 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 at some level everything always exists all at the same time right yeah. i mean right. with your with your spouse girlfriend child the different motivations for affectionate behavior all coexist at the same time it's it's not that cupboard love doesn't exist right i mean people love us for what we can do for them as well as just for who we are these things all exist at once so in the everyday flow of life, I just accept that it all exists at once. My my dog gets very excited. This stupid thing we do now, I'm trying to teach her to swim, which is completely hopeless, but it means that at about five o'clock in the afternoon, she thinks treats are in the air. And so she gets very affectionate, but then she's also affectionate at other times when there's nothing tangible, nothing, no reason to expect. So these things are all there. Yeah. As a scientist, we have to design artificial situations where we hope we can, to some degree, tease apart different things. I mean, one of the simplest things we ever did, and I, I love I love doing simple things, is we just have a person sit in a chair. We mark a one meter radius circle around the chair, so just over three feet radius circle. And we've kept their dog away from them for a moment, and we just let the dog into the room with them. We just measure how much time does the dog spend inside the circle with their person. It's super simple. But it's actually very telling. The dogs, usually, if you give them the two minutes, most dogs just spend the whole darn time in the circle with their person. 
Um, whereas we do the same thing with these hand-reared wolves, which, you know, they've known these people since they were 10 days old. We're using the same people that the dogs, the wolves knew when they were pups. And they, they maybe spend 30 seconds inside the circle. They don't have the same intensity of connection to people, even people they've known all their lives. Mm. So, you know, we do very simple things like that. Another thing we do is we give the, we give the dog or the wolf a very simple problem, some food in a container. If you wanted to, you, the dog, could open it. But actually what most dogs do, if there's a person in a room, most dogs just look at the person. They just look at the person for sort of help, instruction, even if it's a stranger. Whereas the wolves, they just go ahead, they just rip it open. So mm. we try and develop simple, sort of artificial, but not hopefully too artificial situations where we can tease apart different forms of motivation. Oh, that's so fascinating. So I, I want to, one, give you an opportunity to, if there was any um, closing thoughts or any open loops of, of uh, things out there that I might have missed, but also to, just to give you an opportunity to plug uh, your own like personal website or any other um, any other research or anything you'd like to point people to. But I just definitely want uh, listeners to check out the book Dog is Love. Uh, but uh, Clive, was there any anything else you'd like to direct people toward or any any other thoughts? Um, people can find out what I'm up to by following me on Twitter. I'm at Canine Cognition. And, um, and my website, www.clivewin.com. I would, I would only like to add that I'm fascinated by where dogs come from and the nature of the human dog relationship. And I think getting to the bottom of things is the best way to build a better life together for dogs and people. But actually in terms of the research work that we do, the majority of our work is focused on immediate problems that dogs have. I mean, Dogs, many dogs lead beautiful lives in our societies, but there are still 4 million dogs a year going into animal shelters in the United States. And most of our efforts go into trying to help those dogs. And you mentioned, Shane, that you fostered a dog at one point. We've been doing a big research program on the benefits of fostering, uh, supported by Maddie's Fund, which we're very grateful for, and going around shelters all around the country, helping them to implement fostering programs. And I hope that through programs like that, we can move forward to a world where we don't have millions of dogs sleeping in concrete kennels in shelters all around the country. And instead, if an animal can't live with you anymore, Shane, you know, there's a facility that used to be an animal shelter, but is now just a community animal facility that helps you find a new home for that dog or heaven forbid, but maybe you have to go, you know, maybe you're in hospital for a week, you know, find a foster home just for a week and bring the dog back again. It's all about finding ways to help people and their animals live better lives together for both sides of the partnership. Cause it's a, when it works, it's such a wonderful thing, you know? Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. My, my sister's been fostering dogs for, uh, for a decade or so regularly and, and, uh, she absolutely loves it. And, and so, uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was so wonderful to see you again. Uh, yeah, Clive. come back, come and back to town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I will. I've, I'll have to see maybe maybe in the fall or something. But I'll I'll look yeah. you up for sure. That um, would be great. I'd love that. Clive, win everybody. Check out Dog Is Love and uh, and also just thank you so much for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you more next week. <laughs>